Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Done By Law on 3CR. I'm Sam and very pleased to be joined by Kamna as well. Hello everyone. I'm filling in for, I believe, one of the Gemmas. I just always (laughs) assume it's one of the Gemmas. And it's great to have you on board. Um, Tonight we've got a bit of breaking news, I guess, um, with the federal government today announcing um, that there's an overhaul of its controversial robo-debt program, including ditching the problematic income averaging method of determining debts owed by Centrelink recipients. And in announcing the move, Gov- Government Services Minister Stuart Robert played down the number of people who had received a notice based solely on income averaging, indicating that the government will still reach out to people who may have a debt based on income averaging. Joining us to talk through the significance of the announcement is Charlie Brumby-Rendell. And Charlie's a uh, lawyer with Victoria Legal Aid's Economic and Social Rights team and has dealt with a lot of these cases. Um, Thanks for joining us, Charlie. Thanks for having me here, Sam. So I guess we'll just kick it off and and just get your take on what today's announcement means for people with alleged debts. Uh, Well, Sam, today's announcement is a great result for our clients and for thousands of people who have been affected by robo-debt. What we understand from today's announcement is that um, as of today, uh, no longer will the government raise debts relying solely on averaging ATO income income data and that they will also review what we believe would be the thousands of people whose debts have been raised solely on that basis. And so in terms of the impact of the current robo-debt scheme, can you talk to us a little bit about, I guess, you know, this overhaul being really great, but um, what is the current impact of the automated scheme? Well, the robo-debt system is is clearly flawed and it is affecting some of the most disadvantaged members of our community. Um, The clients we speak to find it very distressing, very confusing, Uh, They're not able to find the documents that Centrelink's requiring them to find to disprove the debt, and it's causing people a lot of distress. And so what was the legal basis or the government's argument that the income averaging was legal? I mean, if if, if I think about my own tax return, if they just averaged it out based on what I'd earned over a number of years, then it, it wouldn't seem fair, but what are they relying on to say that this was lawful? Uh, that we, um, we see it the, the same way, Sam. Um, obviously, when people are receiving uh, Centrelink payments, the ones that are most affected are New Start and Youth Allowance. They're required to report their income um, every fortnight, and that uh, income, as um, most of you would expect, varies um, and isn't earned consistently and what the robo-debt process was doing was averaging out that income over the year and assuming they earned that income consistently. In terms of the um, the government's um, legal position on that, our uh, legal aid's test case is due to be heard on the 2nd of December and the Commonwealth is required to file their submissions in three days' time. So I guess, I mean, it's an interesting, um, I guess, example of 
a, a legal test being brought against the scheme, but also I think the work of so many different advocates, including um, people who were who have been advocates in the welfare scheme as well as legal advocates, kind of putting this pressure on the government to reconsider um, a key aspect of the the very sort of basis of the scheme that you're working on. Yes, I think today's announcement is is a great um, success for, for everyone who's been advocating against robo-debt. Um, the, the, key, the key announcement is that they'll no longer be raising debts um, with the use of averaging um, and that the reverse onus will no longer apply and they're the, the two fundamental basis on our test cases saying that the process is unlawful. And so under the current scheme, um, talk us through the reverse onus. So essentially... Um, you get a notice from Centrelink saying a debt's assumed against you and unless you can disprove it, mm. then you're required to meet it? Uh, yes. So what, what's more or less what Centrelink does um, under the current scheme is um, write to you and, and notify you that they believe there's a discrepancy that um, may indicate that there's an overpayment and if a person isn't able to provide any further information about their income at that time, then Centrelink relies on the averaging of the ATO data to raise a debt. And for people who, this has obviously um, impacted a lot of people, but a lot of people who haven't necessarily gone to Legal Aid or another organisation and sought advice and tried to get out of the debt, what happens with the people who have paid their debts now? Um, today's announcement uh, didn't didn't have many details, mm. um, so it's not not a um, it's not something that I guess we can answer at this point. What what we do know is what the government has announced is that they will review all the debts that have been raised solely on the basis of averaging that income. Okay, um, and what what other methods? I mean, the minister today did play down. Um, that there are the the number of people who have got a debt based solely on income averaging. Um, are there other methods that have have been more legitimate and um, uh, I guess get a better assessment of how much they owe? Uh, we we would say a more correct way to calculate whether someone has been overpaid a Centrelink payment is to access the pay slips for that period, which is um, which will have a more accurate reflection of what a person actually earned in the fortnight in which they received that payment. And so I guess um, RoboDebt's been in the news a lot over the past, I'd say, about a year mm-hmm. um, based on, I think, really successful litigation and advocacy, like I mentioned before. But recently there was also the class action announced. Um, I guess in your view, does this announcement, um, uh, is you know, is it a – will it allow those other review mechanisms to continue or is it kind of a, a break in, in the way that – sort of welfare might be assessed going forward. Uh, do you mean in relation to the, the hearing? Go yeah. ahead. At, at this stage, it's it's really too early for us to say what um, effect this announcement will have on uh, the hearing going ahead on the 2nd of December. I guess what I can say is that we filed our submissions a, a week ago and the Commonwealth is due to file theirs in, their submissions in three days um, and the hearing is scheduled to go ahead on the 2nd of December and the key aspects of that case is challenging the lawfulness of relying on the averaging and that aspect of the reverse onus. But the case is also looking at challenging the lawfulness of the addition of the 10% penalty, which is added to many of the debts that have been raised um, through the debt process, and also the use of garnishing, which is 
um, as I'm sure many lawyers will know, taking um, a person's tax return to repay the debt. And how common is that practice from your um, experience? Uh, we um, we don't know the exact numbers on that, um, but the pet clients that we have spoken to who've had their tax returns taken have, have found it very distressing and, and many people uh, do report that has put them in financial hardship. As you can probably expect when people are expecting a tax return, they've often um, earmarked that for um, particular expenses in their life. Who have you found that the majority of your clients have, have been? Have they? If you look back at, I, I guess, a lot of us who are now lucky to be enough to be in employment but have access to Centrelink at some time, we look back at that point and, and think, um, you know, it was a, a really tough time to get through, but now we have a, an income and we possibly could pay off such a debt. But are the people who are coming to you people who now have employment or are they in uh, still reliant on those Centrelink payments? Um, I don't kind of have those um, stats, I guess, at hand, but I think our clients are coming from a variety of different circumstances. But the common, I guess, theme for most of their experiences is that they, you know, this is a very distressing process for them. They don't, um, even where their debts are recalculated, that um, they don't have an understanding of what that basis is for the recalculation. Uh, they're not. They find it difficult to get the documentation. They find it difficult to get through to Centrelink and to understand what's going on with their debt. And that's one of the, um, I guess, unifying themes that you see in the discussion around robo-debt, that it is people from all different types of or walks of life um, who've accessed welfare for a range of different reasons who are experiencing the same issues, would you say? Yes, I think that's probably fair to say. I think the the sort of statistics that... um, the government has released in in relation to various kind of Senate inquiries shows that, you know, it is across a variety of age groups and um, different payments. It is generally the payments of New Start Youth Allowance and Ausstudy that have been affected um, by this robo-debt process. And what now? Is this what you are after or is there another thing that you want the federal government to step up and do? Uh, well, well, where we're at at the moment, as I said, is that the the, the test case is, um, you know, scheduled to go ahead on the 2nd of December. Um what what today's announcement does though is it it does it is showing the government is scrapping the worst aspects of robo debt which is um is um the automated know, recovery yeah, yeah that's right sorry it's the averaging of the ATO income data and that's um you know obviously a great win for our clients and for thousands of people who've been affected by um, robo debt uh, our client Deanna you know is thrilled that um, that that outcome um, has. Um, been announced today as that's really at the heart of um, her case against um, the government. But there are other aspects uh, of the robo-debt process, Sam, um, including the addition of the penalty, which I mentioned before, and the mm. taking of people's tax returns. Um, and, you know, that is part of the case that would be heard on the, 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 the 2nd of December. Is that penalty, you mentioned it's 10%, mm-hmm. is that a one-off 10% or is that a, an interest payment-like charge? Does uh, it accumulate? The interest is a separate um, thing that is added to the debt. The penalty, the 10% penalty or otherwise called the recovery fee is generally added at the point of raising the debt and that is yeah, 10% of the calculated overpayment amount is added to the to the debt and is included a part of the debt. Um, some of the initial, as I understand, or uh, when the debts were first in some, being raised in some of the initial iterations, it wasn't clear to people that a 10% penalty fee had even been added to the debt. Mm. If... If there is a lawyer listening who wants to help out, um, is this something that should be left to 
someone who has expertise in, in the area? Is there something they can do to help? Um, I'm not sure I'm, I'm able to answer that question. If um, people want to um, seek legal advice about a robo-debt um, or a debt raised by Centrelink, you know, they can call um, various legal aid commissions or um, Social Security Rights Victoria. Um, there's some of the you know, CLCs as well that are able to offer assistance with robo-debts. Hmm. Ongoing as well, just, uh, um, I guess, um, to to look towards the future. We've, we've heard what you're saying about um, the... Uh, the robo debt scheme is itself, but are there any focuses that you have on the welfare system in general and how you would like to see it um, improved from a legal perspective? Um, I think today I'm really f- focusing on uh, the excitement that is the announcement um, of this kind of key aspect of robo debt being being scrapped. I think that that's just going to have such an amazing um, outcome for thousands of. Um, of our most disadvantaged members of our community who have been affected by robo debt, and um, yeah, for today, just focusing on that, on that outcome. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Charlie. Um, and just, I, I guess, to to emphasise, if people do want to um, get advice on a, a robo debt notice, that they can call their various legal aid commissions to get advice. Um, but thanks very much for coming in today, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Sam and Cumber. That was uh, Charlie Brumby Rendell, who is a lawyer with Victoria Legal Aid's Economic and Social Rights team, on the very exciting announcement of uh, that the government is ditching uh, their controversial uh, income averaging method of determining robo debt. You're with Sam and Kamna. Um, on Done by Law. Uh, so now that we've just um, had a chat to Charlie about the robo-debt scheme, we're going to get into um, police powers in the context of protests and how um, there are different mechanisms in terms of keeping them accountable and also just understanding what people's rights might be when they engage with civil protest. And we're lucky to be joined by um, Gregor Husper, the Principal Solicitor at the Police Accountability Project. Gregor, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Sam and I kind of wanted to talk to you in the context of, I guess, the fact that there's been lots of um, public profile protests, including the IMARC protests recently, um, where there um, was a discussion following them and during them about the increased police presence at those protests, but also the mm. behaviours that um, police were engaging in towards um, protesters. Um, and following that, there was a pa- uh, article by Anthony Cully in the Saturday paper on the weekend, um, who works with you, about sort of the different ways in which police powers are triggered in the context of protests um, and what that can mean for sort of uh, citizens' rights and general accountability. Mm. So... Yeah. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. The first question I guess I had is um, what uh, what triggers police powers in the context of a protest setting? Well, often the decision that police make in how they respond to a protest is a political decision that they make and they'll often make that decision in the context of um, external pressures that they're receiving, whether that's in the newspaper or their own perception of, of what is lawful or what's appropriate. And many times that mightn't align with, with um, pub, the public's expectation. For example, in the Armark demonstrations, that alliance of activists was trying to draw attention to global warming mm-hmm. and environmental issues, 
which actually do exist are very broad public support, and yet we saw the police acting in a way that, that privileged the miners, the um, extractive industries, and, and sought to shut down that exercise of, uh, of public participation in, 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 our, in our democracy, you could say. And one of the things um, I think that's really interesting in that is that it's the police-own assessment about what level of control they feel um, uh, needs to be exercised in the context of protests. Is that right? Yeah, so that's one of the comments that Anthony made, and I think it's, it is well made. We see that not just in the context of protests, but also in everyday policing. Mm-hmm. And the, the police playbook, and, and this comes from their training, is that they have to control the situation. But that, that is both that, that, that's harmful in many respects, but it's also open to a different way, a, a different approach. The way the police see that is that in a way that they won't brook any 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 um, challenge to their authority. But what that means is that also in the case of everyday policing, they're not receptive to an explanation that somebody might give them, or they're not receptive to somebody trying to act protectively from being bashed by the police or when they're pushed to the ground, but the person is trying to act protectively by putting their arms out in front of themselves, not wanting to be kneed in the back. And yeah. so they see that they have to control that situation and they escalate force. And um, how do you see that? Yeah, how do you see that play out in terms of like the work of the police accountability project? So, well, we we are trying to bring about a more uh, accountable police force, a force that's perhaps more reflective, and that it takes a more rights-based, human rights-based approach to to um, responding to law and order. And so, we do that in a number of ways. Uh, in the past. We used to lodge a lot of complaints on behalf of people. We, we have uncapped demand. Essentially, there's uncapped numbers of inquiries of people complaining to us about police brutality or misuse of power. And in the past, we had a police complaints practice where we'd lodge complaints to, uh, unfortunately, the situation in Victoria, that the complaints are investigated by the police. And the substantiation rate for police complaints is about 7 to 9%, and it's about 3% or complaints about assaults. And so we tend not to lodge those complaints as an organisation anymore because yeah. it's an unsatisfactory outcome for our clients. And so some of the ways that we now deal with this is that we engage in policy and advocacy and law reform, and we also undertake civil litigation on behalf of people who have been the victims of police and of power. That seems to be a really sensible approach in light of the current framework. Um, we've seen reports... Um, particularly at the IMARC uh, protests where police greatly outnumbered the protesters or, or, you know, or maybe not greatly, but they did outnumber them. And, it, um, and some people were claiming that the, the police presence was excessive. What would you like to see happen there? Is it a matter of less policing or more communication or something else? Well, I think broadly across you know, society, we could have a rethink about how we use police and just generally try to reduce police contacts. Mm-hmm. And, and so we would like to see a reduction in police contacts. And we've seen, for example, in, in other jurisdictions where they've had disastrous stop-and-search powers, mm-hmm. and that, that has resulted in over-policing of marginalised communities mm-hmm. and stop-and-searches and strip searches done in inappropriate ways. So broadly as a concept, I think we could, have, we could seek to reduce the number of police contacts. And in the... In the um, in the context of the IMAC demonstrations, that again is it's a political decision by the police as to how many um, officers they'll put out there. 
and what they would see as their level of tolerance or intolerance for what is a lawful protest. And in many respects, they could have gone. I mean, they could have gone about their policing in a different way. So legal observers were there, trained legal observers, and the feedback that they provided was that there were lots of options for the police other than the ones that they used, which resulted in an escalation of, uh, of violence, predominantly, or really pretty much exclusively, brought about by the police. And so, Gregor, in the context of, um, I guess, the work that you're doing um, and an increased police presence at not just protests, but just increased policing, um, just focusing on protests for the sec- for the moment, um, I guess legal observers play a critical role in terms of, I guess, some level of documentation or um, evidence-based sort of responses. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about um, the role they play and I guess how someone who might be interested in doing that work could get involved? Well, the value of the, of the independent observers is that in some that they provide a calming presence and they provide an independent uh, oversight that could be used as evidence. Uh, they can also, depending on the role, sometimes typically they won't, they won't play a liaison role. That'll be the role of the organisers of, of the action. Mm-hmm. But they're there to observe and to document what has happened and, and also then to raise subsequent legal assistance. So... Um, if people want to get involved in becoming legal observers, the Melbourne Activist Legal Service provides training. Yep. And I think most of the legal observers at the IMAC protest were, uh, came through MALS and probably other organisations and universities that might also provide training. But the uh, advantage of that, the IMAC protest, is that there was a lot of documentation. And so we were able to see very clearly how police in an unprovoked manner were spraying capsicum spray over groups of protesters who often had their backs to them, were just standing in a peaceful manner, resisting, going limp or not moving, and how the police used um, OC spray in a way that is, that is unlawful, essentially, in using it as a coercive weapon to control the situation when there was no actual fear of or escalation of violence. Yeah. Which and, might have permitted a lawful use of that spray. And I think um, just, you know, closing on that point, what's really I think important in Anthony's piece in the Saturday paper is actually saying this was an example of us seeing very visibly um, the actions taken by police, but in the majority of um, everyday policing situation, that visibility isn't always there. And so that's why further accountability measures um, in terms of the kind of reforms that you were speaking about are what you're asking for. I think members of the public would be very concerned if we see that this is how the police... Uh, go about their business in the cold light of day when they're under close scrutiny. And because it does, in fact, underscore the level of violence that the police use, um, which is greater than this in instances where they're not subject to that scrutiny, we take phone calls daily from people who are coerced into... Um, into um, who are, for example, subject to racial profiling, people of colour who are pulled out by police, um, wrongfully, Ill- illegally stopped on the basis just of their skin colour, and then who are compelled to provide evidence of incidents that they weren't participants in, um, and they're being threatened by a capsicum spray. So we have people phone us and say that the policeman said, if I didn't tell him what he wanted, he'd spray me with capsicum. These are school-aged children pulled over in the city because they share the same skin colour of someone whom the police are allegedly keeping to arrest. And really, this situation bridges all human rights norms and there is a way that we, there is a, a positive thing that we could do to prevent this, or at least to start chipping away at this. 
and that would be to remove the police as the organisation that investigates police complaints. I think that's an excellent so, point uh, to leave it on. Uh, leave that on. We're out of time, but uh, Gregor, thanks very much for uh, joining us on Done by Law. It's been a pleasure saying coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Gregor. That's okay. Gregor Hasper, Principal Solicitor at the Police Accountability Project. Um, if you do want to get involved, um, uh, Gregor just mentioned the Melbourne Activist Legal Observers um, for training. Um, but thank you very much, Kamna, for coming on the program. I hope we can do it more often. No worries. You've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.